This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Alyssa Cole discusses her new book, An Extraordinary Union. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about how major publishers fared in 2016. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD Bookscan. We have a new number one, two, and three on the hardcover oh, fiction wow. list. Oh, Going to start us off at number one is Mississippi Blood by Greg Isles. We give this a starred review, said it's unwieldy and mm. tightly controlled, uh, the terrific conclusion to his Natchez Burning trilogy, um, and that this sweeping story remains intimate. Um, it's about uh, the Double Eagles, a savage KKK splinter group who have declared a personal war on a former prosecutor who's now the mayor of Natchez, Mississippi. Mm. And uh, there's a side plot about JFK's assassination. A lot of his historical content going on and uh, we say that uh, relentless pacing keeps the story churning with unexpected brutality erupting on nearly every page and the trial scenes are among the most exciting ever written in the genre so that's our number one with a bullet wow. um, doing uh, very well 26,000 copies sold right out the gate and uh, you know a real coup for Greg Isles fantastic Number two, If Not For You by Debbie McComber. Um, This is a continuation of the New Beginnings series. It has two parallel stories of love almost lost. Uh, And uh, a music teacher and a mechanic are set up on a blind date. They don't hit it off right away. But then a car crash uh, leaves Beth in a critical condition. And Sam stands by her as she recovers from her injuries. Mm. And so that's uh, not so much a meet cute, you would say, but um, definitely a very intense beginning for an intense relationship. Um, we say that uh, there's also a, a secondary plot uh, where Beth tries to help her aunt find the one who got away. Uh, we say that the stories dovetail well, but showing their very different relationships, both founded on unexpected connections, kind of weigh the book down with its own subplots. Mm. And it might have been better off as two books. Um, but, you know, it's hard to tell that to Debbie McComber, who's so prolific. You know, write right. more, write more. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think she has the opposite problem. She has so many plots. She's got to do two or three to a book because it's the only <laughs> Right, exactly. She can um, make it happen. And uh, we say this is a fun, sweet read that fans of her style will undoubtedly find satisfying. And number three, we have Vicious Circle by C.J. Box. This is a Joe Pickett novel, the 17th, mm. um, after 2016's Off the Grid. And uh, in this one, he's uh, aboard a small plane in search of uh, a hunter who has gone on the run in the frozen high country. Um, but uh, when the fugitive is shot, uh, he has to find out who killed him. 
And uh, we say this outing is the most suspenseful yet in this world-class series, setting a new standard for box. And uh, we gave it a starred review, which is pretty high praise for number 17. Yeah, that is. In a, in a thriller series. So definitely yeah. worth picking up. And it sounds like it's the sort of story that you could start with, even if you haven't been following the, uh, the series so far. At number seven, we have The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C. Uh, I feel we should mention that she used to be a correspondent for PW back in the day. It's very nice to see her on the PW. Oh, right. I remember. Yeah, I remember. Long, long time ago. Um, and uh, this one is uh, set in 1949 um, in uh, a small community of the Aka ethnic minority in China. Um, the youngest daughter of an Aka family is trying to follow their law, but at every turn she finds herself doing the opposite. Um, she studies hard at a modern school. She talks to men uh, and uh, she gets pregnant and gives birth. And by the time her child is born, the father is gone. And so she leaves her child at the doorstep of an orphanage. And so the story follows the, the two women, mother and daughter. And we say that uh, with vivid and precise details about tea and life in rural China, Lian's gripping journey to find her daughter comes alive. Uh, it sounds like a real heartstring tugger. And uh, nice to see that so high on the list. Number nine, we have Man Overboard by J.A. Jantz. This is the 12th Ali Reynolds novel, and uh, this one spotlights uh, the second-in-command at the cybersecurity firm owned by Ali and her husband. Mm. Uh, his name is Stu Ramey, and he's described as a brilliant software guy with the social skills of an onion. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a little classic uh, nerd stereotyping right. there. <laughs> and uh, he he ends up tracing the online footprints of uh, a no-good neck who they've been uh, trying to hunt down. And um, it, that includes introducing an artificial intelligence to whom Jance gives nearly human characteristics. Uh, there's a race to a climactic showdown, lots of adventure and fun. And uh, number 14 is Mangrove Lightning by Randy Wayne White. Uh, this is the uh, 24th novel featuring marine biologist and sometime government agent Marion Doc Ford. We say that this installment is entertaining, if less than compelling. There's uh, you know, some adventures uh, involving a Florida Everglades property owned by a retired fishing guide that gives you a sense of uh, the, the maybe slightly more laid back right. vibe going on here. And uh, it, it takes a supernatural turn uh, when they go to an island and confront a number of human monsters controlled by a most unlikely mastermind. Uh, there's a little bit of a stretch in the plot, we say, in this fragmented adventure. And finally, down at number 17 is The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi. I'm very happy to see this one on the list. Uh, it's right. been getting a lot of press yeah. uh, and a lot of interest in the science fiction circles. Scalzi is best known for the Old Man's War series, uh, but he's uh, written a number of other things. And this is an opener for a fast-paced new space opera series, setting up key players along the primary travel corridor of an interstellar empire that's overflowing with complex interactions among nobles, politicians, business interests, and an unstable physical environment. So basically the premise here is that humans have discovered a way of traveling very long distances in a very short amount of time, but the, the routes, the corridors they use uh, are shifting and moving like rivers, mm. and they're slowly moving away from some of the key planets in the empire, which is going to leave them stranded. 
We say that Scalzi's storytelling centers on dynamic and quick thinking players with strong personalities who engage in spirited social interactions, making the slightly dubious physics forgivable. <laughs> and uh, expect several future works set in this sprawling universe. Um, I'm you know, not surprised to see it on the bestseller list. He certainly had bestsellers before, uh, but it's great to see people getting behind this uh, new venture uh, into a, a new and very interesting setting. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Lots and lots of action. Yes, we have a little a little bit of action, not as much as in the uh, fiction. But we do have, I've been seeing a lot of books on weight loss, on improving your body, mm-hmm. um, one's body. So this is at number four, Wired to Eat, Turn Off Cravings, Rewire Your Appetite for Weight Loss, and Determine the Foods That Work for You by Rob Wolf. He's the uh, best-selling author of The Paleo Solutions. So you've got a lot of that philosophy going into this book, Turning Off Your Cravings. So that's at number four. At number five, we have Brightline Eating, The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free by Susan Pierce Thompson. She's a uh, PhD, and this is her weight loss solution based on her Brightline Eating Boot Camps, which kind of incorporates neuroscience, psychology, and biology into into this, this program, this diet program. So it sounds like both of those books are really about changing your brain and um, and thereby changing your body. Is this this sounds like a relatively new approach. I haven't seen a lot of books like this. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And and it seems to be there is a, a more thought given to changing how we approach food uh, mentally, not just, you know, counting calories. And this is just how we rethink it, but also changing, trying to change your, uh, your brain chemistry. And as the subtitle, the first one says kind of rewiring it. So, um, then at number nine, a colony in a nation by Chris Hayes. He's the host of MSNBC's all in with Chris Hayes. He's written a laser focused, necessary book about us race relations, primarily the black experience and law and order as they are experienced across the country. We say that this is an important persuasive book that if read can help Americans begin to heal the divide between these two nations. So that's at number nine. Not surprised to see that number 15, we are going back. Back to eating and uh, being in shape. This is by Ballerina Misty Copeland. It's called Ballerina Body, Dancing and Eating Your Way to a Leaner, Stronger, and More Graceful You. So this is through dancing. Okay. (laughs) I I associate uh, professional dance so much with eating disorders (laughs) and doing terrible things to your body that I'm sort of fascinated that this is seen as a selling point now well but. this is this is it they uh, uh, they say uh, in the publicity material we don't have a review that standards have changed what women want is a long toned powerful body with excellent posture okay. according to uh, Misty Copeland so uh, yes exactly that's uh, that's at number 15 number 20 we have the 1997 Masters My Story by Tiger Woods with Lauren Rubinstein we say that uh, Woods recall the start of his landmark career on the 20th anniversary of his mythic 1997 Masters wins, which came only a year after his professional debut. Uh, he's writing with Rubenstein, who wrote Mo and Me. And uh, we say here, sparking yet another comeback into golf's limelight, Woods writes with absorbing focus and profound emotion on two of his favorite subjects, golf and himself. <laughs> um, and then at number uh, 22... 
who thought this was a good idea and other questions you should have answers to when you work in the White House by Alyssa Mastromonaco. Uh, this is, uh, according to the publicity material, if a funny older sister were the former deputy chief of staff to President Barack Obama, her behind the scenes political memoir would look something like this. So that's what we have at number 22. With that title, I expected it to be about parenting. Yeah, yeah, right. That's good. We thought that was a good idea. That was a good idea. (laughs) Very well said. All right. That's all I got. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Alyssa Cole tells us about interracial romance during the Civil War. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Alyssa Cole on the line. Her new book is An Extraordinary Union. Hello, Alyssa. So glad you could join us from Martinique. Hi. Thank you guys for having me. So your novel is set in the Civil War era South. Tell us about the the two main characters, uh, Ellen Burns, who goes by Elle, and uh, Malcolm McCall. So Elle is a free black woman um, who is living in the North, and uh, she has a photographic memory. She decides to use this uh, gift that she has in order to aid the Union, and she becomes a spy. Um, She poses as a slave in a Confederate senator's household in Richmond, and there she meets Malcolm McCall, who she first believes to be a confederate soldier but who she discovers is also an undercover union spy a pinkerton detective so so give us the setting uh you say it's in richmond virginia um tell us a little bit about this i mean this this in the um uh at this um, politician's house tell us who the politician is and what is the house where does he live um so he lives in Richmond. He's a his name is Senator McCaffrey, um, and this is a fictional character. Although both Ellen and Malcolm are based on um, real Civil War spot Union spies, um, and this character is a Union a Confederate senator who has moved to Richmond um, to take part in government. Um, his house it's not his true house, but he has moved his household with him and some of his slaves with him and um, had to bring in new workers, local workers, and that is how um, L gets to infiltrate the household. And how did L and Malcolm decide to become spies? And you said that L has this gift and she wants to use it for the union. What's Malcolm's story? Um, Malcolm is, uh, he is originally Scottish from Scotland, and his family was driven out during the clearances. Um, so they were, they came to America force by force, basically, and he kind of is driven by that desire to live in a country where people are free and where the, um, I guess, where people don't have to fear th- the same kind of things that his family faced in Scot- in Scotland. And um, how hard is it for Elle to pose as a slave after being a, a free woman? And um, how hard is it for her to pose as mute? And why is that necessary for her subterfuge? Okay, so um, Elle's particular backstory is that because she had a photographic memory, she was kind of um, tell it taken around on the abolitionist circuit and shown as um, kind of a specimen of 
uh, you know, that black people could have the capacity to be intelligent. And um, so for her, posing as a slave is particularly hard because she, number one, she's extremely intelligent. Um, she's independent. And also she does not like being treated uh, as less than, like as most people wouldn't like that. Sure. Um, so for her, for her, it's particularly hard. And also she has this background of kind of being um, a specimen for, for other people. Um, and she, poses as mute because she has kind of a smart mouth, I guess. And so um, she's the she is a spy for a secret society um, called the Loyal League. And her commander basically has told her that she needs to pose as mute because he doesn't want her to blow the mission. So tell us about how she, I guess, came to be a spy. You mentioned this, uh, this group who she's spying for. Who are they and what are their plans? I mean, what is, what is the uh, ultimate consequence that they hope? The Loyal League is an African-American secret society, and their purpose is to gather information to aid the union because, of course, by aiding the union, their ultimate goal is to... Um, bring about the end of slavery in the United States. And um, they are based, this group, the Loyal League, they were real Loyal Leagues, and uh, they, they, it was based on actual historical groups that, um, I guess in most cities, any city where there were black people, there were generally groups, some more organized than others, some kind of based in, uh, you know, European secret societies. Uh, there are Freemasons. So there were many um, groups of African-Americans who work together and also with abolitionists and with other groups to try to help bring about the end of slavery. And um, give us a sense of how these groups all work together um, or whether there was coordination, because it seems to me that in a place like Richmond, where there was so much going on related to the war and related to the Confederacy, there must have been a lot of people with similar goals kind of converging on the city and uh, and trying to, to bring about their own uh, end goals, their own desires. Um, these groups generally operated... Um they were coordinated, like I said, some more than others. Um, some ways that they worked were, for example, some people would gather information from slaves and they would pass those on to um, the Union troops who could then pass it on to Washington or they had their own ways of getting the messages to the Capitol. Um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the work was also, you know, helping escape slaves, um, helping the black communities where they were whether they were slave or free or a mix of both. And um, so, yeah, the organization, I guess it was obviously harder. They didn't have the Internet and Twitter and things like that. Um, but in a place like Richmond, there were there were a lot of unionists. Um, there were more in other places, but um, it was slightly it was made more difficult because there were also more you know, Confederates, and they had to be very careful about how they interacted with each other and um, how they passed information along and who they passed information along to, because, of course, there were also Confederate spies who would be trying to catch them. 
so uh, we've talked a lot about the historical dimension of the book. Tell us about the romantic dimension and the challenges that Al and Malcolm face once they realize that their connection is more than just two spies working toward the same end. Um, yeah, so the, ram- the romance in the book is um, obviously during that time period, there were interracial relationships. There were also, uh, there is also the fact that many black women were raped by their slave owners and by white men. And so there's this kind of thing that looms over them that um, basically the way it's up is that he sees her and he's like, oh yeah, this is it. And she is very reluctant because she's well aware of the fact that um, in society, no matter, even if he does actually care about her, which he doesn't entirely trust because his job is lying, no matter no matter what he says or believes that society will always place him above her and he will always kind of have that power over her even if he doesn't want that power so that's something that um, they need to work through so how does their relationship evolve um, their relationship involve, evolves as they work together they grow closer they start making discoveries that um they would not have been able to make on their own. And they, st- they start to see that they work well together as a team, um, as spies, and also perhaps as something more. Uh, as, and so basically the evolution of the relationship is kind of a push and pull, but it's also, it's Elle lowering her defenses, I guess, but also Malcolm realizing more clearly why she needs those defenses and um, why he could be dangerous for her, even if he does care about her. So um, I'm very impressed that you've managed to take this historical setting and a time of such tremendous racial and gender inequality and still basically have a, a workplace romance. Uh, <laughs> you, you, have these, you, you have these two people um, who could be seen as having very different stature, but, but it, at sort of at the core, they're colleagues um, and that lets them see each other as as equals. Was that like a, a goal that you had starting out, or um, is that just how the story evolved? Um, that's just how the story evolved. Um, because basically, and it's funny because I, I don't know if you saw on Twitter this week, there was kind of the hashtag Black Women at Work, mm. which kind of talks about all of the microaggressions and um other things that black women that were faced while working. And I was thinking that this is kind of like a black woman at work historical because a lot of the things that Elle faces, it's not only that she's a black, it's also that she's a woman. Um, like for example, some of her fellow spies perhaps thinking that she wouldn't do as well, even though she is, um, she has more skill than them. And like just her photographic memory alone is something that makes her uh, really valuable to them. So um, it's something that kind of just evolved as the story went along. Her, uh, their work rela- relationship was just totally tied into their romantic relationship, in a way. So how did how did you come across these characters? I, I, how did you? What inspired you to create these characters? You said they were based on uh, real people. So. Um, I started this book in 2013. It was my NaNoWriMo 2013 uh, project. 
And it was for the years before that I had been reading um Tanahasi Coates' blog on the Atlantic. Mm. I was a huge fan of that and um for a period he did a deep dive into Civil War era. Um and you know, he co- he covered various stages of history. And I think for a few years I was just kind of um collecting all of these things in my brain. Because when I first my first books were not historical. They were contemporary. I still write other genres, but I kind of even though I loved historical romance, I was always like I don't know if I want to write historical romance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on when you start thinking about outside of white people, which is what most historical romance has been thus far. Mm-hmm. And it was like, do I really want to like deep dive into history and kind of because so much research goes into these books that like, you know, you're going to learn a lot of things that you don't want to know um, or that you wish, you know, hadn't happened. So basically this came out about because um, he had been talking about the Civil War and I I started thinking, okay, I'm going to write historical romances. And I was like, I'm not going to write Civil War historical romance. I was like, I think I can write anything else but Civil War historical romance because there's so much going on. And um, so my first idea was for, uh, I did a, a Revolutionary War anthology featuring um, people who you know, whose stories don't usually get told. Um, but before I wrote that, I NaNoWriMo arrived and I kind of had an idea for this Civil War story. And I said, well, since it's 30 days, I'll see what I can write in 30 days. I have this idea. I'm going to go for it. And it actually turned out really well. And I found that it wasn't as difficult uh, to write as I thought it would be, or not that it wasn't as difficult, I guess, um, I was more excited about writing it than I thought it would be. So um, I had learned about Mary Bowser, who is the inspiration for Elle. I'm pretty sure I, I saw her on Coates' blog at some point, and I thought that would be an amazing heroine. So I kind of started with her, and I started doing a lot more research and reading about Pinkertons and... Um, reading about a lot of the Scottish and German Union soldiers. And then I came across Timothy Webster, who was one of the Union's greatest spies. So, And then I thought it was just kind of like two puzzle pieces going together, like kind of the traits of these two people would make really great heroes and heroines and a couple. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Alyssa Cole, author of An Extraordinary Union, about the research that went into her interracial Civil War romance. So, Alyssa, um, this is really fascinating, but you can't possibly have done all of that research and written a manuscript in 30 days of NaNoWriMo. I mean, how, how were you juggling all of that? It, just a historical while doing, uh, a, you know, 50,000 words in 30 days um, just seems like a tremendous amount of work. 
I think I just got really excited about it, and then it kind of became uh, not an obsession that I was like, I so I did some research before, and in general, when I'm writing uh, my anything, but especially my historicals, I do research before, and as I'm going, I'll be researching along the way, and then I just kind of find things and like, oh, this would fit perfectly, or this is something that can happen to them, or what if instead of this happening, something now that I know that this one thing is possible, it means that this other thing is historically possible too. So it's kind of like, um, obviously it was the first draft. The first draft was not <laughs> not anywhere near the final version. Well, it was a little bit, but like at, and after the first draft, after NaNoWriMo, I went through, of course, did revisions. And as I wrote and rewrote and researched and learned more, um, more went into the story. And how were you going about doing the research? Were you, uh, were you going to libraries? Were you researching online? Um, a lot of it was online research. Um, also ordering books from Amazon. Um, a lot of... One thing that I found really useful with the Civil War is that um, after the war, so many people wrote journals, so many soldiers, politicians, and even everyday people wrote journals about explaining what happened to them or their experiences during the war that um, really helped with giving a deeper setting for the story. Um, so I used all of that. And, um, you know, I think in a way, too, that if you're an American who absorbs pop culture or grew up watching the History Channel um, as a kid and you kind of have a baseline already with the Civil War. Hmm. I grew up, I grew up in New York, so it wasn't like, you know, we were talking about the Civil War all the time or there were battlefields that I visited as a kid or anything like that. But I think there was always kind of a baseline idea for me to work with and to kind of figure out where I wanted to go and what kind of research that helped me, like, figure out what kind of research I needed to do or what I wanted to focus on. But the popular conception of the Civil War isn't going to focus very much on the accomplishments <laughs> of black women. So how did yeah. you how did you research that in in particular? Because um, I know from from my own experience doing historical research, there are some stories that that just are very hard to unearth. Yeah. So this is the other thing. And when I say that uh, we have this pop culture understanding in a way, the general pop culture understanding and how it guided me was like, I don't want to write about this. Like, I don't want to write about Scarlett O'Hara. I don't want to write about Southern Bells. I don't want to write about brother versus brother. When they were like, and this is the, the amazing thing about the Civil War is that there was so much going on all over the country, all over the continent. And it all gets kind of reduced to you know, Southern Bells and brothers who had to fight each other and the noble Confederate hero who didn't really want to have any slaves and things like those are the narratives that are generally popular that have been until very recently. And look, thankfully, that's changing, which shows like underground and things like that. But um, I, as far as researching, um, one of the things that helped is I think I was very lucky to start writing when I did because I feel like more scholarship was coming out um, there. And again, one of the more helpful things is that, and that I don't think 
in my experience so far, hasn't always been in the actual scholarship. And the thing that I found a lot of in um, just people's everyday recountings was, you know, the fact that slaves and freed black people, but particularly slaves, were extremely helpful to the union. They passed on um, a lot of the more sensitive information that uh, other spies would not have been able to get was passed on just by, you know, regular everyday people because their masters didn't really see them as humans and didn't think that they should not have conversations around them. Um, so they would talk about, you know, troop movements. They would talk about, uh, you know, trying things with the blockade and political things. And then the slaves would then go and find if they were just not a part of any secret society or any organized group of collecting information, they would see a Union soldier and say, hey, this is what I know. So one of the things that I hope to talk about more with uh, this series is that like nearly every intelligence source, um, Union intelligence source cited during that time talks about the importance of the information gathered from, from slaves. Um, I believe it was called Black Dispatches that was the name they gave to the information they got from um, slaves and free black. So, so um, a lot of that came up, like when you're reading these accounts of, for example, prisoners escaping or people passing through, like it's kind of in the background, but you begin to see a pattern of like, oh, these people were helped by slaves. These people were helped by slaves. These people were helped by slaves. And um, you start to be able to piece things together. And it's incredible that uh, characters like these are historically in, in books live alongside the, the characters, say, in Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. I have not yet read Underground uh, Railroad, unfortunately. Um, I wasn't reading any fiction set during the Civil War while I was writing. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, to <laughs> to yeah. avoid it, um, subconsciously incorporating anything that was not from my own brain. And well, also wasn't from, you know, factual history. Sure. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And it seems like, though, uh, this time period has, uh, has uh, particularly captured your imagination since uh, this isn't just one novel, but one of a series for you. Yes, um, because I feel like there are so many different stories to tell. Um, there are so many different aspects. And also, I kind of want to capture the entirety of the war. Good um, luck. And, <laughs> <laughs> That's a tall order. At least, a, you know, a, a brief arc of the war or, and to show how that, um, how things changed and how kind of the different ways it affected different people during, uh, because I feel like that's the other thing too, that there's just this kind of unified narrative of what the civil war was. When really there were so many different things going on, people in different places, like from town to town, there were different responses. There were different, um, you know, reactions to the Confederacy, to the Union and to slavery and emancipation. And how there are just so many different stories to tell, which is why it's sad that there is always there has been until recently um, a very kind of flat telling of this, the story of the Civil War. So can you tell us anything about the characters in the, the upcoming installment? The characters in uh, A Hope Divided, which is book two in the Loyal League series, the hero is Malcolm's brother. His name is Ewan McCall. 
Um, and he has been working as a union counterintelligence agent. And he, the story starts with him in prison. Um, the heroine's name is Marley, and she is um, a free black woman. She was born free. She is, her father is white. Um, she lives with her white family, though she was primarily raised by her black mother, who was also, who was a freed slave. And um, she is kind of a medical botanist and very into science. And um, Ewan is very into logic, but her mother was a root woman. And so she's kind of, her journey is kind of coming to terms with science versus the mystical. And um, they basically are in North Carolina. And the background is um, Southerners who were rebelling against the Confederacy. So uh, I guess a little, a quick elevator pitch would be Bell meets, uh, what was that Matthew McConaughey movie? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. I don't know. Uh, but, oh, uh, uh, free State of, oh yeah, so it's kind of Bell meets Free State of Jones, even though the idea was, I had the idea for it before I knew those movies existed, but for, <laughs> for a succinct explanation. So, um, obviously, interracial romances really strike a chord with you. Why is that uh, a focus of yours? Well, for this series, uh, well, I married to, my husband is white. Mm. But um, I find that I write all types of romance. Um, you know, I, I do have stories where all the character, the hero and heroine are black. Um, generally, I'm trying to write black heroines. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a focus of mine because I think, you know, I like writing those stories. And also I think it's important for black women and young girls to have um, these kinds of people to read about. And I say, even though I write romance that is technically for adults, I started reading adult books when I was seven or eight. And I noticed that there were not any, many people who looked like me in my mom's romances or even in thrillers or things like that. So um, when I write, I do try to think about, you know, the books are for everyone, but I also do want generally, I think as, you know, I hopefully will be writing for a while. I do plan on writing um, many types of people, but, um, but I think I'm also really interested in particularly in America, but also, you know, in other countries, just the way that, um, even though there are so many differences between people, there are so many interesting stories and there are so many interesting ways that people come together, even though in general, it seems that people live very segregated lives. Like, for example, the last novella I wrote was um, set in 1917 Harlem and it featured a Bengali Lasker who had jumped ship and a an African-American heroine who was a cabaret owner, but it's based on real stories because um, before the Immigration Act that uh, barred the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, which blocked people from Asia from coming to the United States, um, there was a population of South Asian um, sailors and merchants who lived in the U.S. Uh, then, you know, they basically they were, but they were all men. For the most, I, there may have been some women, but I didn't find anything in my research. So then they intermarried into Black Puerto Rican and West Indian family uh, families in the Bronx and New Orleans and things like that. 
but they're, you know, these are stories that you don't really see that much about. So then when you think about the history of South Asians in America, a lot of people, to most people, it seems that they only arrived in the 60s or the 70s after the, you know, the immigration laws were changed. So I think um, for me, it's a, it's a good way of, on the one hand, I do want to have black heroines. On the other hand, I do like showing all of the different aspects of America and how kind of how people have come together throughout history. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, what the experience of the romance writing community has been for you. And uh, also, if you have any advice for other people who want to write uh, romances featuring characters of color and particularly authors of color who are trying to enter what has um, for a long time been a very overwhelmingly white community. Um, I think my experience has been, my experience has been in general pretty, pretty good. Uh, I think I'm very lucky because I've met so many, I think in general romance is um, a very kind and giving community. Um, So it's fairly, the entry, I won't say it's easy, but you can find people to talk to, you can find beta readers and critique partners. You can find people who are willing to talk to you a little and tell you about their experience and kind of help guide you where you want to go. Um, And I, before I lived here in Martinique, I lived in New York. I've only been here for two and a half years. Uh, And so there was a a great romance writing community there where I got to meet a lot of friends and kind of, you know, brainstorm and um, get integrated, learn more about the romance community and get integrated. Um, but um, what I would say to people of color who want to write romance is that, yes, it can be frustrating sometimes. I do think things are getting better. Um, it can, you know, but sometimes there are barriers that are not like, you know, people in Ku Klux Klan hoods standing around saying, sure, you publish your book. But there, I think one of the problems problems is, you know, systemic racism, which ruins everything in life, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like, you know, people have a lot of ingrained ideas about who reads, who reads what, Um, you know, the people who they do think read, which generally they think um, with romance in particular, there has been a lot of pushback about, well, who is going to read this and who wants to read this and things like that, what is marketable. When, you know, in general, my readers come from any group you could think of, any age group or sex, gender, sexuality. Um, Like, I really think that a lot of times what you have to put up with is that, um, you know, marketing and sales can be closed minded about who the audience is or they might not know who the audience is when the audience is actually everyone. Mm. So um, there is kind of, uh, you know, that can be frustrating at times. And for some people, you know, it's very hard and some people do give up. And I'm not saying that. And I think that they're entitled to that because, you know, facing rejection after rejection and this kind of with when you know that there's something else going on can be very disheartening to people. But I do think that um, people should keep trying. They should find their, if they have a local RWA chapter, 
or for me, honestly, Twitter and social social media is a great place for romance writers. There's a, you know, most, I won't say most, but a lot of romance writers are on Twitter and there are like, you know, weekly chats and like, um, RW chat, hashtag RW chat is a great place for beginner romance writers. I think it's every Sunday night, but mm-hmm. if you search hashtag RW chat, um, which is romance writer chat, uh, it's like people just sharing their experiences and like their guided questions that like with a different topic each week. Um, but I think just kind of keep trying and also find the most important thing is to find friends, find people who have your back and who you can talk to about anything with uh, writing wise. And, you know, like in any friendship, you will find some people you think you can or people who are not there for that particular thing. But I think in general, just having a core group of people or a couple of friends who understand romance and how romance is different from other literary genres and um, know what's going on and kind of can support you as you make your journey into becoming a published author. Um, That's invaluable. And, you know, friends, friends are invaluable in any sense, but especially, I think, um, in writing, because writing can be a very lonely, kind of intense thing, and you need to have people that you can talk about it with. And sometimes when you're a romance writer, if you have a friend who writes in a different genre, or who writes literary fiction or something else, it's not always going to be easy to talk to them about it, because there are different, uh, there are some differences, and also some people still don't still look down on romance a little bit so find people who like romance to talk about it and talk about it with them read as many romances as you can because you really you know whatever you're going to write you should be reading a ton of it um just to get more to kind of get the architecture down and like that's not to say you are copying anyone else but there's a kind of emotional uh path that most romances take no matter what they're about and you need to kind of know how to feel that before you can write it and have it uh you know have your story resonate with people we've been talking with Alyssa cole and you can find her book an extraordinary union in stores right now Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us oh thank you that's fun I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reports on Publishers 2016 numbers, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about how publishers fared in 2016. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Always nice to have you on the show. So uh, we've got these numbers now. It's the end of Q1 2017, if you can believe that's happening it's already. Yes. Yeah, it's the end of Q1. <laughs> Q1 uh, 17, and we can put our final wrap on uh, 2016 because Penguin Random House uh, earlier or last week uh, finally released their numbers. They're traditionally the last to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and since they're the biggest, we can't really draw too many conclusions until, until they weigh in. So, uh, And how did they come out? Well, it's interesting. Um, sales were down almost 10%. 
Um, is that across the board or for Penguin Random Penguin House? Penguin Random House. Specifically. Uh, for the whole industry, it'll still be a little while. Um, but yeah, it was down almost 10%. And, and that was a couple of things. Um, currency fluctuations, you know, hurt a little, but we don't need to get into that. They sold off a few things. So I, uh, I don't know how many people have been paying attention to that. But during 2016, for one of the, the biggest sales they sold was Fodor's which was their big travel right. operation. Um, they got rid of Author Solutions, which was their self-publishing one, and then they got rid of a little uh, Random House Studios, which didn't do too much, but mm. they're trying to develop film. Well, how was it selling off folders? How did that affect their numbers? Well, you lose the revenue. so Because uh, it's a big revenue. Well, whatever it was, I don't know. Right, yeah. let's, let's say it was $100 million, right. right? So they lose that revenue. Right. So that was down. Um, but, you know, the biggest chunk of the decline, about 4%, was due to just straight-on lower print and yeah. digital sales. Wow. And they attributed, and I think it's something we've talked a little bit about here before, was there was no huge new block, blockbuster. Mm. Right. Uh, especially, for, <laughs> especially for them. Right. I mean, you know, they still had The Girl on the Train and a couple other ones that had more or less almost holdovers from 2015. Right. So they had nothing to really explode on the scene in 2016. So, you know, so that's tough. And it's also every publisher we talk to, actually, uh, in the big five here, and it's not, the big five we have to specify, it's not Macmillan since they're private. It's, the fifth one is Houghton Mifflin, but the other four are Penguin Random, Hachette, Lagardere, which you know, Lagardere owns Hachette, Harper, and Simon & Schuster. And Houghton Mifflin, just as we reported a couple of weeks ago, uh, underwent some uh, restructuring and layoffs. Right. They went under some restructuring and layoffs. Now, again, the biggest chunk of their business is educational. Right. But some of those restructuring uh, changes did hit uh, trade. And trade, you know, they were one of the few companies where their sales actually went up, but their uh, profits went, went way down considerably. They mm. went down by about 19%. Mm. So we could see where management would have some incentive to try to take some cost out of the business. Wow. And that's and if we're looking at the overall picture, that's what's really striking about what's happened. Sales were soft to down for the most part among right. the publishers we looked at, but with the exception of Houghton Mifflin, their operating margins went up. So what that means of course is that they became more efficient. Uh, they found ways to cut costs and they were able to deliver if not necessarily higher profits, at least a higher operating margin. So, for instance, we just talked about Penguin Random. Their sales went down almost 10%, and their earnings went down, but that was only about 4%. So their operating margin you know, went up from 15% to 16%. You know, and that's important in terms of how your, your corporate uh, owners look at things, too. I mean, you know, in the old days... And that's not long ago. A 16% operating margin for a trade publisher is, you know, almost unheard of. Right, right, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. So for nowadays, that, that's really good. Yeah. And, you know, one of the big things they attribute to, and some people, including myself, were a little wary of, like, well, you're buying Penguin and you're trying to integrate into a random house. How much efficiencies could you really get out of basically the two biggest publishers you know, in the country. Right. And when they prove, you can actually get efficiency out of it. So, I mean, that's 16%, you know, is, is a really healthy margin. And, you know, more of that was seen, you know, pretty much throughout, throughout the course of the five people we looked at, companies. Uh, Harper, you know, they bought Harp, uh, Harlequin a few years ago. They were actually, it's kind of amazing, they're a $1.65 billion company, wow. and their sales were flat. 
<laughs> literally yeah. flat. But their income went up a little, and their operating margin, you know, is up to 12.7%. And again, some of that was attributed to completing the integration of Harlequin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's the case can be really made that there certainly is advantages for companies getting bigger. Right. So how does all this look, uh, you know, compared to this time last year? Well, again, it's that the numbers themselves are, the, 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 the revenue number is usually flat. It's mm-hmm. very soft, flat to maybe down a little or up very little. And even some of the operating income numbers are down or flat, but because they've done a good job in controlling costs, the margins are better. Right. So, um, you know, again, that's important if, you know, again, to appease your the corporate owners and appease shareholders. But it does pose sort of a longer-range problem is, you know, you can only... <laughs> You can only squeeze so much out of a rock. Right. right. And that at some point, the total pie has to, has right. to get bigger. Right. How you do that, you know, is an open question. And again, we, we can look at Lagardere here, you know, the UK company. Oh, I'm sorry, the French company that owns Hachette. And overall, their total sales are up about 2%. Earnings are up about 5%. So their margin is now at 9.2%. But Hachette... Book Group, the one in the United States, um, they bought Perseus, you right. know, last March. Right. And Lagardea, to their credit, has a very good, uh, a very transparent uh, reporting system. So they were saying, well, without Perseus, Hachette sales and earnings would have been uh, Hachette sales would have been down last year. Mm. You add in Perseus, which is about seventy-five million dollars in twenty sixteen, and their sales are up, and their earnings are way up. So, you know, I think Michael Peach has said. Uh, before that, you know, in this no growth environment, you know, one way and the best way to get bigger is to buy your way bigger. Right. And that's, it's not a bad strategy. So does anyone just want to do okay anymore? Is it all about getting bigger and bigger and pushing those numbers higher and higher? Is, is anyone just satisfied with, uh, you know, hooray, we went through another year and we did pretty well and this is sustainable? Um, well, sustainable is a good question, Rose. <laughs> um, and I, I sympathize with what you're, I think, the underlying tone of your question. But the issue is the five companies we look, uh, look at are publicly traded. Right. So there is always a push to do better, you know, financially. I think, I think to be honest, of all of these were publicly uh, or privately held, like PW is, thankfully, um, <laughs> they would probably be relatively happy. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the days of Harper and Rowe. And <laughs> right, yeah, that's those days. And McMillan. And and McMillan, McMillan, right. McMillan is not on yeah. here because they're privately owned by the Holdspring family. Right. So um, however they're doing, we don't know. And if you ask John Sargent, the best part about his job is that he works for a company that is privately held. Right. So... Again, I mean, Houghton Mifflin isn't really great. I mean, a 4% operating margin isn't terrific. But the other four, you know, the margins are really good. They're very profitable. Um, Nobody earns less than $100 million. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not not all bad. But it does point out the two things we've talked about a little bit already. They're parts of publicly traded companies, so there's always pressure to do better. And there is the overarching question, you know, throughout the whole industry – what do we do to make the pie bigger? Well, I think uh, you, you mentioned sales being down because of no big blockbuster. I think everybody's waiting for the next mega hit to come along that uh, you know, people will buy, even if they don't usually buy books, uh, or that's going to be somebody's one book of the year to try and reach 
the segment of the population that is not so much the voracious reader, but maybe the occasional reader. They definitely need occasional readers. You know, something, you know, something always surprises us. So, you know, and publishing is a land that uh, is always hopeful, always optimistic. <laughs> There's a, the next big black luster is around the corner. That's, that's certainly true. Well, thank you, Jim. It's always good to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotell, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Dr. Jody Foster, author of The Schmuck in My Office. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.com. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 